For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how changing your address may affect your voting status will explain a loophole that may have kept some votes from being counted in the last election. Meet Wolf Boart, who talks about creating his new stage production, Cloud Soup. And what is Avatar, and how might it revolutionize the concept of telling truth from lies? Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. You may be surprised to find out that if you've changed your address over the last few years, it may have actually affected your voting status and possibly led to your ballot not being counted. Here joining me is reporter Nancy Montoya, who's been exploring this story. Thank you for being here. It's actually called the NVRA, which is the National Voter Registration Act. And the thing is, if you move, you change your address, you get a new driver's license, that's supposed to automatically trigger a change of address for your voter registration. The problem has been that doesn't always happen. And so many people who show up at a precinct to vote are showing up at the wrong precinct and their names are not on the list to vote. So often they're turned away and they're given a provisional ballot. But if they vote and they're not in the right precinct, that provisional ballot does not count, will not count in the state of Arizona. And the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, says that could have impacted as many as 500,000 folks in Arizona this past election. So in researching this story, what are you finding people are saying? Are people willing to talk about this? Well, there's actually been a lawsuit that has been filed by the ACLU, Mi Familia Vota, Uh, Promise Arizona and the Arizona League of Women Voters against the Secretary of State, uh, against the Department of Transportation, because it's, it's a federal law. They must do this. So, of course, the plaintiffs are ready to talk about it because they're very concerned about people's right to vote. On the other hand, the uh, Secretary of State is uh, not willing to talk, and neither is the Arizona Department of Transportation claiming that it's now in litigation and that their attorneys have advised them not to talk. Now, Mark, Daryl Hill is the lead attorney for the Arizona ACLU. Uh, He's heading up the lawsuit. He says that the main breakdown occurs when an Arizona resident, like I just said, moves and goes to the MVD to get a new driver's license with a new change of address. So that affects everyone across the state. When you uh, change your address to Phoenix and you move to a different part of the city, the state is supposed to automatically change your voter registration And what we found, that wasn't happening in every case. But the problem, Mark, says Hill, continues online as well, not just in person. Arizona uses a a website to uh, process most of its uh, applications for the DMV Service Arizona. You uh, you can uh, apply for your driver's license. You can change your address all through this website. But the website was not processing voter registration information as it should have in compliance with the law. Now, Darrell Wood did say that they are in talks right now with the Secretary of State's office and the Department 
of transportation to see if if they can reach some sort of an agreement to keep the entire issue from going to court. But they're not hopeful. Apparently, Michelle Reagan, who is the current Secretary of State, was advised almost two years ago of this problem. Although promises were made, promises were not kept in terms of fixing uh, the issue. Now, we have a new Secretary of State taking over, Katie Hobbs, who's a Democrat. And she has vowed that that's going to be top on her list to get this situation fixed. You would think with the stakes of the recent elections and the number of people who are really getting uh, active and interested in politics right now that this would be a big issue and that there would be groups around the state, including, say, the League of Women Voters, who would have a lot to say about this. Here in Tucson, Judy Wood is the president of the Greater Tucson League of Women Voters. Now, they're nonpartisan, um, and they want to make sure that there are very few barriers to, to actually voting. Here's what Judy Wood had to say. The League of Women Voters was formed nearly 100 years ago, and its main premise is making democracy work. And the way democracy works is by everyone being able to cast their vote for whoever or whatever issue they are in favor of. Leading up to the election, there were louder debates in other states about voter suppression. Would people say that what's happening here in Arizona could qualify under that name? Certainly, yes, uh, especially the Democratic Party. They are crying foul on all of this. The U.S. Census shows that uh, people who vote Democratic are more likely to move in the course of the year, as are minorities and people who have less income. They're more likely to also vote. So the Democratic Party is claiming that it's voter suppression on the part of the Republican Party who may not want those folks to show up and vote and may want to make it a little bit more difficult for them to vote. Well, I'll tell you, Nancy, this year, after 30 years of voting, I found out that I could actually find out if my ballot was counted. Both the Secretary of State for Arizona and here in Pima County keeps track of this information and makes it available to the public on a website. And we'll have a link at azpm.org. That also gives people a chance to keep up with the rest of your reporting on this issue. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Just take this easy so they don't get hurt. At its core, it's a classic conflict. Man versus rat. But Cloud Soup tells a much larger story. It's the latest in Wolf Boart's 20-year series of one-man shows. Using physical theater, magic, live special effects, and props, Boart is able to weave together a tailor's daily life with his dreams as he takes the audience on a journey into the unexpected without ever using a single word. It's a show that he premiered earlier this year to large audiences in Malaysia before bringing it to the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater in Tucson for performances this month. I was able to watch a tech run-through of Cloud Soup to experience the magic firsthand before getting a chance to talk with the usually much less verbose Wolf Boart about how it came to be. Seeing the inventiveness with which you explore the space on stage and take advantage of things that other more mundane productions may not, using the wings of the theater, the the ceiling, uh, everything at your disposal, do you sometimes think that you are using a resource that goes wasted in other theatrical hands? As a magician working with stage illusion, you are constantly concerned with uh, sight lines and what people can see and are there strings and how are they levitating and things like that. 
but yeah, I do enjoy using the space, making each piece uh, site-specific in a sense. We have toured all over the world, and so we did a lot of one-night stands back in the day. And so you'd come into a theater where it had terrible sight lines, and you could see the exit sign in the back or the green room door. And so we had to find ways of doing that without traveling with our own set of curtains and things. But yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I enjoy standing on a table if we have a table, and I enjoy you know, not just setting the dinner table with plates, but juggling the plates and then standing on the table if we have a table. And the same goes for the wings and the, what's up in the air. If we can fly things in, we will. Yeah, that's interesting. That's what's interesting about this work is that although it's scripted and I, Cloud Soup, it's been written out like almost like a children's book, uh, but prose, you know, he does this, this happens, I'm thinking this, um, this trick, here's how that works, so that you could read it and get a, a sense of it. Um, and then from that, there's I improvise in rehearsal, and then from that I improvise once there's an audience, and things change, and I rewrite the script nightly, at least for 100 performances before I stop doing notes afterwards. And well, can you give us an example of something that played well in Malaysia that made its way into the story, or maybe didn't because it played so well in Malaysia, but it's not the kind of thing that might play well here. Yeah, well, this show I wrote for the Scoundrel and Scamp here in Tucson and also the Kuala Lumpur International Arts Festival, happily named Diversity Festival in Malaysia. And it was a 500 plus seat house and there was 450 people each night and it went straight back. So there were quite a ways away. And what I realized is that certain small movements or certain small bits of sleight of hand, for example, there's bubbles in, in this production, and I reach out and I grab a bubble that's um, maybe two inches in diameter. And that's fine here in Tucson in this theater because it's intimate, you can see how things are done, which are, pose other problems for me as a person who uses magic in theater. So this is, uh, in a sense, the U.S. premiere, but it's really being remounted here uh, from the ground up, so that's exciting. I enjoy the concept of film as memory or as a dream, and that sound that certain people of a certain age remember, the projector sound. But in this production, Cloud Soup, I use a, an old bellows camera. I pull out a, a, a Polaroid and I open it and it extends. And by holding it up and doing a selfie with that, people who don't know what an old camera looks like, kids, kids today, they will see this camera and they'll go, oh, that's a selfie. It's interesting to keep these objects and, and these movements and these stylistic things like juggling or magic or acrobatics, things that you normally might not see in theater, because this form, the sort of vaudeville or uh, using theater and magic and puppetry and all that was, was more common and, and still is more common in Europe than it is in the U.S. Is the character that you play in Cloud Soup, is he a happy guy? Is he comfortable with his place in the world when the play begins? He's not necessarily happy with who he is in the beginning. Um, he's sort of blaming everyone else for his problems and the rat is not from around here and is taking his job and his money and annoying him and taking his food and he's blaming the rat for his problems. And the people that come to his shop appear to him in a dream and he um, 
gains this knowledge about himself and the world and the global neighborhood. But even with all these characters being described, let's remind our listeners that there's only one actor in this performance. There are. There are a few people on the film, and there's a little bit of backstage help, but uh, it's, they're one-man shows, one-person shows. That uh, The storyline is, is king. Um, also, ha- relaxing and having a bit of juggling or something for the sake of entertainment uh, is okay, too. So, so for you, juggling is relaxing? Yeah. It is. It is very much. And also for the audience sometimes. It's lyrical. It depends on what it is. But it's beautiful. And there's a, there's a place for beauty and stillness and breath and calm and quietness and just crickets, which you hear occasionally. Wolf Boart's latest creation, Cloud Soup, at the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater, located in the historic Y on North Fifth Avenue in Tucson. Wolf recommends the show for ages 6 to 96. Telling truth from lies was an obsession of a scientist named William Moulton Marston, who played major roles in the invention of two things that you've heard of, the comic book character Wonder Woman and the lie detector. While Wonder Woman's golden lasso magically compelled someone to speak only the truth, the polygraph has, in practice, proven to be far less reliable. Nearly a century after the polygraph's introduction, the University of Arizona revealed a new type of truth-detecting technology that's been under development since the year 2000, funded in part by the Air Force Office of Scientific Research with interest from Homeland Security. Jay Nunnemaker is a Regents Professor of Management Information Systems and Director of the UA's Center for the Management of Information. He's been a part of the Avatar Project since it began, and I asked him to explain how it works. The first part is coming up with a set of questions that the Avatar would ask. It sounds like a simple task, but we had a project with TSA, and it took nine months to get approval of the set of questions. Mm-hmm. And then in the kiosk is a whole set of sensors, a high-definition camera, audio recordings, ocular metrics, eye-tracking device, the Connect system from Microsoft, which looks at kinesics, motion, and gestures. So the subject stands in front of an ATM-like screen, and then what do they see on that screen? How would an avatar session begin? The avatar would introduce himself and describe what you're going to go through and the process. And he starts with some control questions, a predefined script, that has many branches. And so the avatar starts out the same way, but can branch to different agendas based on people's responses. So the person's uh, being uh, recorded with high-definition cameras and sensitive audio equipment. They're standing on a pressure plate. Um, What is the avatar learning? What can it discern from these um, sensors? to try to tell if a person is indeed telling the truth? Well, what we do is we try to find ground truth. 
And ground truth is, let's say in a border setting, how many people got past the checkpoint with weapons or drugs or false documents? And Border Patrol and TSA really don't know what the ground truth is. So we have had to operate in a quasi-experimental field setting. We've done it at Reagan Airport, the border, Bucharest Airport, uh, where we can get real passengers, but not in an operational setting under the same time pressure. They consent to go through and use the avatar. What are the sorts of tells that the avatar system is looking for to distinguish truth from fiction? We've conducted the ground truth where we give people false documents, uh, weapons, um, contraband to get through the checkpoint. We know when we run these experiments who's telling the truth and who's lying. And so we can look at pupil dilation when people are asked a target question, is this a true and accurate passport? And it shows the image of the passport on the screen. And we can tell which fields the subject is looking at. We can also analyze the vocalics. Uh, So there's linguistics. Uh, we, We evaluate what is being said and also how it's being said. People always want to know what's the number one tell, and there isn't one. There's no Pinocchio's nose uh, because people are very good at hiding certain cues, but others leak out. And an officer can only be looking at a couple of things at a time. I mean... Humans just aren't as good as computers in picking up all the cues and then analyzing it. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel the accuracy rate at this point with Avatar is? It depends on the ground truth that we have. Mm -hmm. So establishing the baseline with the subject. And it's ranged from anywhere from 70% to 93 percent. Although an application of Avatar that's driven the entire process is to use it at border checkpoints and maybe for airport security, it seems like what you're telling me is that actually it might be better applied in legal cases and situations where there is more information at the disposal of the uh, test administrator. Absolutely. And the longer the interview, the better we can do because you can probe deeper And it's not the 20-second limitation. And so I think where we're going to have success is on insider threat and interviewing people, you know, finding out if they have financial problems or marital problems or something is driving them to maybe not do what's right. Yeah, to maybe make bad judgment calls. Do you think that Avatar has revealed that all liars can be measured by the same metrics? Or are there some people who might lie who 
would just not fit this system. Yeah, we haven't done enough testing to actually do that. But one of uh, my colleagues, Jeff Hancock at Stanford, works with sociopaths. We're, we're trying to get a project with Jeff where we're looking at another subset of the population that would give us some insight. What's right now the next step for the avatar technology? Is it leaving the laboratory anytime soon? Yes, and we think the big applications are the insider threat at airports or companies or whatever it might be, or basically just the interviewing process in selecting candidates for a job. <laughs> That's so because, intimidating. Because uh, we've done resume studies, and we've found that undergraduates at three different universities have done this study. Uh, 93% of them embellish what's on their resume. My guest was Jay Nunnemaker, Regents Professor of Management Information Systems at the University of Arizona. Since the 1980s, master gardeners in Pima County have been helping the community by answering questions about native plants, common garden diseases, and how to tell the good insects from the bad ones. But where did the title Master Gardener come from? Here's Tony Paniagua with the coordinator and the senior office specialist for the Pima County Master Gardener Program. Eric Johnson and Francine Correll, thank you very much for joining us. Eric, I think a lot of people have heard of the Master Gardener Program or Master Gardeners. What is it basically? Uh, Master Gardeners, uh, in a nutshell, are volunteer community educators. We take information, research-based information in horticulture from the University of Arizona and other institutions and deliver it and teach it to the public in a variety of different ways. And what are some of the topics that are covered by Master Gardeners? Um, well, we, we really cover um, practically everything under the sun from uh, aquaponics to roses uh, to uh, developing certification for uh, wildlife habitat in your backyard to uh, propagating your own plants at home, um, container gardening, uh, boy, the list goes on and on. Francine, so how did you discover this organization? I know you've been there for 34 out of the past yes, 35 years. that's right. Well, I just applied for university, and I didn't know nothing about uh, horticulture or anything like that, but I learned a lot over the years. So what is it like? What is your role there at the Cooperative Extension? Well, um, every time the volunteer come in the office, they always need something. So I just provide anything they ask to make their life easier. At one point, you became a master gardener. Can you tell us about that experience, Well, please? yes. Uh, I was on the Georgeburg Bank, 1994, and he said, well, you're going to have to take the class. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll find some times. And so yeah, I did, and um, it took me about mm, 10 weeks, I think, every morning I was taking the class, and then, then I became a master gardener. And what do you think yeah. of that? Oh, it's, it's very—I learned a lot, really. It was really— uh, intensive, but I learned a lot about this horticulture and the roses and this and plant identification, things like that. So 
We were speaking ahead of this interview, and you are—you don't come from a biological or horticultural no. background. You studied yeah. something else, but then you became yeah. a master gardener. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, my background's in visual arts. I've been a musician in town, um, but I have always—I think one of the things I inherited from my family was a real deep interest in horticulture and plants. And uh, my dad has a real green thumb. My my grandparents were immigrants from Europe, um, and my grandfather was a real naturalist and and farmer, and that's how the family survived uh, for the the first couple of years. And and when they when they made the journey over, and um, really got me inspired to to continue that kind of journey. And so the master gardeners seemed to be a real good fit. And what have you liked about it, Francine? About not only becoming a master gardener yourself, but being part of the central nervous system for this organization well, here in Pima County. Well, it, it's the volunteer uh, themselves. They're great people. I mean, they work hard, and they're all from different backgrounds. A lot of them are retired, and it, many times I have a chat with them, and I just love it. I mean, they're all different, and they're just, uh, it's amazing how good people they are. I mean, we're lucky to have these volunteers. Very lucky, yes. Let's talk about this upcoming event of Pima County Master Gardener 35th anniversary celebration. It's happening on Saturday, October 27th. What can people expect to see if they attend? It is uh, going to be a celebration of the program. Um, one of the things that was central to the development of this event was that, that I was working with a Master Gardener volunteer named David Williams. Uh, and in t um, it kind of occurred to me as I've been in my position for about two, two and a half years now, and um, I've heard many uh, urban legends, let's say, about the, the 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 program and the dates of when people did this and did that. They all seem to be not really very consistent. And I I said to David that well, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a written a comprehensive written history of our program? And uh, and unbelievably, he he said, sure, I can do that. Okay, anything else you would like to say, Francine, about your 34 years as well, part of this organization? Well, I'm, I'm still going, so I'm not ready to go yet. <laughs> so I still enjoy it. And you, Eric, moving forward? You know, I think uh, it has really been an honor to be involved in the program. And honestly, I think we have never been in a better position than we are today to uh, continue forward um, and, um, you know, keep uh, doubling down, so to speak, on our mission as community educators. Thank you very much, Eric Johnson and Francine Carell, for being here, and good luck to you. Each of Arizona's 15 counties has a Master Gardener program run by the University of Arizona's Cooperative Extension. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.